Our speaker today is Professor Michael Ferber. Dr. Ferber earned his BA in Greek from Swarthmore College and his PhD in English from Harvard. He joined the University of New Hampshire as an associate professor in 1987 and currently teaches uh, in their English department and humanities program. And he also helped start the War and Peace Studies program. Dr. Ferber has penned five books about romanticism and edited two, and author of more than 50 articles and reviews. He has translated some of some 60 romantic era, excuse me, romantic era poems from French, Greek, and Italian. His own works have been, or will be, translated into five languages. Today, Michael Ferber will offer a defense of romanticism. Please join me in welcoming Michael Ferber to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you very much, Carol. And many thanks to the Athenaeum and to Deborah Vernon for arranging this. Uh, Deborah was my student a few years ago at UNH, and uh, what a wonderful student she was. Uh, not only a fine scholar, but a delight to have in class. You're lucky to have her here helping to arrange these things. When uh, Deborah asked me for a title a few months ago, I tossed off this thing at the top of my head, why romanticism was a good idea, and I said I'd get back to you with a real title soon. Um, but as I thought about it, I thought, well, it's not such a bad idea, romanticism, and it has been attacked a lot. I mean, partly, as you know, the word romantic is used in a condescending, sometimes insulting way. Uh, and, you know, after World War II, there were quite a few books that blamed Nazism on German romanticism, at least. So it's had a kind of bad odor, at least as a system of ideas. Though some would say, well, gosh, I mean, if you just think of it as a movement in the arts, what needs defending? I mean, we have Beethoven and Chopin and Berlioz and Schumann, and we have painters like Constable and Turner and Friedrich and Delacroix, and among poets, we have Wordsworth and Keats and Shelley and Byron and Pushkin in Russia and the early Goethe and Schiller and so on in Germany, Victor Hugo. I mean, what needs defending here? These are permanently part of our great cultural legacy. But it is the ideas that many people take uh, exception to or think of as a little weird or excessive or irresponsible or maybe even dangerous in one, one way or another. So I want to defend it a bit. Of course, being a scholar, I can't use such a simple title as this uh, unfootnoted. So it really should be something like why romanticism was, by and large, more or less, a pretty good idea with a few exceptions, uh, but it wouldn't fit nicely on this PowerPoint slide. So I'm going to talk about basically three areas. Um, I'll try to leave time at the end for discussion, but uh, if you feel I've gone on too long and you've got a question, don't hesitate to, to raise your hand. Um, there are many, many aspects to romanticism. Uh, some would say it's so complicated a thing that it really has no simple definition. There's no essence of it. But there are certainly themes and positions that were taken by many of the people we still call romantic, either in England or America or in various countries in Europe. And here are three that I want to stress today and why I think they had some good ideas, some ideas that are still with us uh, and, making, and without which it's hard to imagine our modern outlook. 
The first and probably the easiest to discuss and to understand and to agree with is that Romanticism was the first movement to make us aware of the natural environment and its preciousness. Here's the river Y. We know for whom that was very important. This is, of course, in England. William Wordsworth walked the Y Valley in 1793, and then again five years later, upon which he wrote his great poem that's known as Tintern Abbey. And here is a bit of it. Oh, how oft, in darkness and amid the many shapes of joyless daylight, when the fretful stir unprofitable and the fever of the world have hung upon the beating of my heart, how oft in spirit have I turned to thee, O sylvan why, thou wanderer through the woods. How often has my spirit turned to thee. He himself was a wanderer. He dresses the river as a fellow wanderer. And remember that when you address something like this, that's called an apostrophe, uh, you are in a way personifying it. He is at least pretending that the river can hear him and understand him and speak back. And for Wordsworth, that was more than a little rhetorical turn. That was a, more than a metaphor. Wordsworth felt that the world, and the natural world in particular, was alive in some way. Not just individual trees and animals, but the whole thing was alive, and we were alive, and when we are most alive, we are most in touch with it. So we owe to Wordsworth quite a bit uh, of our modern notion of the at least the restorative powers of nature. He knew when he was returning here that he was recovering something from five years earlier, and as it goes on to say later in the poem, he knew he was storing up experiences to look back on uh, when he needed it most. Don't you sometimes feel that when you're looking at a great natural site, maybe on a mountain you've just labored up, oh, I want to take this in, I want to keep this, because I'm going to need this a couple months from now when I'm driving on Starro Drive, <laughs> which we just did a few minutes ago. <laughs> I'm going to need this picture. You know, I'll need it for my health. Wordsworth was one of the first to say that in very eloquent ways. Here's another bit from another poem, also often quoted. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can. Sweet is the lore which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things. We murder to dissect. We who collect butterflies, right? We have to kill them, even to mount them. So we know this of Wordsworth. Wordsworth himself, later in life, when he was in his 70s, tried to stop the railway from coming into the Lake District where he lived. That may not have been so forward thinking of him because it was poor people that wanted it to enjoy the Lake District. But he was very much afraid of what would happen when industrialization reached these great natural places. And uh, he was at least the grandfather of the environmental movement in England and to some extent America. Germany, too, had its environmental movement or its cult of nature, the Black Forest being something like the Lake District in its effect on poets. And here is Josef von Eichendorf also addressing nature. O oh, mountains, O oh, broad valleys, O oh, beautiful green woods, you holy place of refuge for all my joys and woes. When outside, duped as ever, the world goes bustling by, cast again your arches round me where your green pavilion grows. Uh, he too 
wanted to take this little package of experience with him when he was back in the, wor in the, the world of dupes. Indeed, the world, both in German Welt and in the English world, meant, of course, not just the planet we're on, but the worldly world, the world of worldliness, of buying and selling, and so on. So there was this. And of course, painters, at about the same time, were looking again at nature. There had been some natural painting, uh, landscape painting, in Germany, I think, a century or so before, and there were the Dutch landscape painters. Um, but it got a new life and a new prestige. The most prestigious kinds of paintings at this time were the great historical paintings and portraiture. Um, landscape painting now became this, came into its own, you might say, by the, by the great romantics. They were very interested in clouds. John Constable was always doing cloud studies uh, and the seascapes. And here we have, of course, Caspar David Friedrich, the great German painter who made his landscape seem somehow spiritual, somehow instinct with something significant, partly because he arranged things in a kind of symmetry that seems a little unnatural on top of obviously natural things. But something kind of throbs in Friedrich, uh, and yet his technique is exact, very precise. Um, he can somehow make things resonate that they seem perfectly true to life in some ways. And um, here is Turner, uh, one of his more, <laughs> I don't know, over-the-top paintings, literally over-the-top, of the St. Goddard Pass in Switzerland. It's an example of the sublime, you might say. And one of the tricks of the sublime, it seems, is that you can't tell where you're standing to look at this, right? I mean, where is your standpoint? It's off the painting. There's presumably another bridge like this across the chasm that you could, that Turner is supposedly standing as he paints this. And I think it makes it seem all the scarier that you can't see it. Um, it gives you that dizzy feeling that it's part of the sublime. I'll get back to the sublime because it had a religious aspect um, that the Romantics were well aware of. So Switzerland now is something worth looking at. And up to the middle of the 18th century, Switzerland was just scary except for those few brave souls who lived there. Uh, the Lake District in England was a little safer, but um, people didn't like mountains until around about the middle of the 18th century when it began to seem suddenly interesting and maybe safer to visit. So it became part of the, the British Grand Tour to go to Switzerland or maybe the Pyrenees or something. Um, and that's something we now just hardly can understand why you don't think mountains are nice or at least impressive. But until around, just a little before the Romantic movement, they were thought of as ugly and dangerous. And so we can thank uh, Wordsworth, in large part, for being the grandfather of the Sierra Club. This is John Muir, who uh, read Wordsworth, admired Wordsworth. He went to the Lake District. Uh, he spent some time at the gravestone of Wordsworth here in Grasmere, at the Grasmere Church, picked some leaves from a tree nearby and mailed them home to his wife. We know how important uh, the English Romantics were to Muir. He, of course, was also well aware of Thoreau and the Transcendentalists here in the Boston area. But uh, they, too, were, of course, partly responding to the English movement. So uh, that's all I think I need to say about nature, because that's a, sort of an easy one. 
we can thank the romantics for maybe the movement that's going to save us. I mean, we're in serious trouble. I'm sure you agree with global warming. But it's going to be the environmental movement ratcheted up tenfold that might save us. And if it does, we can thank Wordsworth in part. Uh, if it doesn't, well, we won't be around to thank him or, or, or what. But at any rate, it's, it's put a seed in us that's flowering now, thank God, and is very important. Something a little more complicated and maybe less obviously good, because some people will disagree with this, is the movement within Romanticism to redefine Christianity. And the first move it made, and again, not all the Romantics were exactly on the same page here, but the first move it made is to see Christianity as beautiful. That was more important to them than seeing it as true or as essential for salvation. Um, it was beautiful. And maybe, yeah, they agreed with it in various degrees and so on, but they, they tended to see it as a body of metaphors and as something very beautiful, particularly the churches that you could go visit. Uh, and the best-known exponent of this view was Chateaubriand, who wrote Le Génie du Christianisme, that is, the genius of Christianity, or the beauties of the Christian religion. Here's what he looked like. He is responsible for that dish, Chateaubriand, um, a count, an aristocrat. Um, and this was a very influential book. It's hard to find it all in English, but... Um, he was very influential in French. And among other things, he said, you cannot enter a Gothic church without experiencing a kind of shudder and a vague sentiment of divinity. The word in French was frisson, a kind of shiver. And that sort of caught on. I think, again, here in Boston, lots of people who were getting bored with the rather dull Unitarian and Congregational churches, those white churches with nothing inside but a pulpit, would go to Europe. Henry James writes about these people. They would go to Europe and fall in love with the great cathedrals and come back maybe a little less Protestant than they were, uh, partly for these aesthetic reasons, not because they'd been converted to the, the entire Catholic catechism, but because it was beautiful. This is a picture of uh, King's College Chapel in uh, Cambridge. So there was a kind of revival of interest in the Gothic. Here's a lovely painting by a not very well-known painter named Schinkel, um, a French poet who was associated with the early Romantic group, Gautier, wrote a sonnet which has these lines in it, precious relics of an age that is no longer. Their vaults trace a black shape against an azure sky. So we saw this sort of sun setting on this kind of Christianity, but thought it was no less beautiful for that, maybe all the more beautiful because it was, its, its age had passed, but it had great glories in the past. We might say, well, you're really romanticizing this religion because it wasn't all glorious, but the parts that they liked um, they thought were harmless and, and very moving, even though doctrinally they were not necessarily following it. A few of the Romantics, especially in Germany, became more Catholic, or became Catholic by the end. But in their most Romantic phase, they were trying for something different. 
here's our man Friedrich again. This is perhaps his most famous painting, the, the Tetchen altarpiece. So it's in a church in Dresden, and that is a crucifix on the top of a mountain. There were many of these in Germany, and he painted many of them. He thought this was where you should go if you want to worship Christ, outdoors, among the trees. But you'll notice, and I'll show you another painting later, that the trees themselves look a little like the crucifixes, and that worshiping Christ on the cross is not so different from worshiping these trees, or at least feeling the presence of these trees, which point to the heavens. The rays of the sun presumably setting, I don't know whether these rays are realistic. Can rays really come up like that? I don't know. But anyway, I think you, it seems to be showing something probably setting. I can never tell in a painting if it's setting or rising, but I think it's setting. Uh, and yet he has these, um, these putti up here looking down on it, these little heads. It's all rather Christian-seeming, though that seems to be, be a more Masonic symbol of the eye in, a, in the pyramid. Uh, no one has quite figured out exactly what he was up to here, but the central painting part seems to be, well, this is a beautiful religion about suffering and redemption and a kind of humility and selflessness, and it is dying, um, but there's something it's leaving behind, something beautiful, perhaps, that we can still admire and cherish. The second theme is to say um, that they took Christianity and wanted to de-transcendentalize it. That's a horrible word, but if you're from Boston, you know about transcendentalism. And actually, transcendentalism really should be called de-transcendentalism, in my opinion, because they were doing pretty much the same thing here in Boston. These were Emerson and Thoreau and the others who had been Unitarians and found Unitarianism a little too stuffy and orthodox, so they were branching out, and they sort of thought, we need a, a, a religion that's imminent, a religion that's here with us, not just up in the sky. And here's a lovely quotation from a scholar now a half century ago, Northrop Frye, who said, what I see, first of all, in Romanticism is the effect of a profound change, not primarily in belief, but in the spatial projection of reality. Now, let me try to illustrate what I think he means by this, because I think he's right. Here's traditional Christianity in a nutshell. Um, if you think I'm being breezy about romanticism, this is really, <laughs> is a breezy. Um, but it'll do as a first approximation. There's God, right? God is utterly transcendent. The Protestants made a specially big deal about this. God is utterly sovereign and different from us. The Catholics had intermediaries like Mary and the saints and so on that helped you get to God, but Still, God was, in the end, utterly above us. He made us. He made the universe. He's its creator. He's not part of it. He's above it. He controls it. He made it. He will destroy it. Down in the left is us, the lower corner. That's our self, our soul. And the other corner is the world that we live in, including nature. And that includes our bodies, right, which are part of nature. Now, our relationship to nature, according to this traditional orthodox view, is that nature isn't so good, right? We better avoid it. And our body is, if nothing else, a source of illness and of sin, of temptations, of lusts. Listen to the seven deadly sins, right? A lot of them are about our bodies not being controlled. 
Um, so we're stuck here for a while. We're stuck in our bodies. We can't help being in this world, but we should have as little to do with it as possible as we try to get to God. So we can take sort of the long way around and just try to avoid it and control ourselves. And when we die, go to God. Some mystics would take this shortcut and try through a kind of meditation or ecstasy to become united with God directly. Um, but in any case, nature was not thought of as an important or, in any case, a good thing. Now, there were some exceptions. You could point to St. Francis. You could at least argue that God made nature good initially, said so in the book of Genesis. But then there was the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, nature fell too, and so it's not good. Well, the Romantics, um, obviously, somehow we got to a different view of nature. So what happened? Well, the Enlightenment happens. Here's breeziness face, too. Uh, not all Enlightenment thinkers were atheists, but the upshot of a great deal of thinking in the 17th, the 18th, well, early 17th, late 17th, and early 18th century was that God, if he existed, was not active in the universe anymore. That, that this was called deism. This seems to have been the belief of most of the founding fathers, including several here in Boston that God made the universe and then retired to Bermuda or something. He hasn't been heard from lately. He had no son. There's no Holy Ghost. He is at best the creator. And so from a scientific and rational point of view, you've got sort of God out of the way. You don't have to worry about miracles. The age of miracles has passed, if it ever was. Um, that was sort of the upthrust of Enlightenment thinking for quite a while. So God is, if he exists at all, uh, is not a factor in our daily lives. He's not answering our prayers. He doesn't care what we do. He set the universe going and has been paring his fingernails ever since. Well, the Romantics inherit this. They're the next generation or two. Um, this seems like a rather cold thing to do to them. It seemed, first of all, it took the beauty out of the religion, but more than that, it ignored the fact that God is somehow still around, though he's not up there and he's not intervening in the sort of the way the Bible says he does. That it's almost as if God died but bequeathed his godliness, bequeathed his divinity to the two remaining apexes or corners of the triangle, to us, ourself, or to nature. So they found divinity in nature, the Romantics did, and they found divinity in themselves. Now this may seem excessively vague, and they were accused of it, and still I have been accused of it even recently, but um, I think this is the move they're making. They, they said the trouble with enlightenment was they just forgot that God was bigger than a personality up in heaven. In fact, Emerson said almost exactly that. He said, I don't think of God as a person. He said, that diminishes God. God is greater than that. And I think what he meant was God is here, everywhere with us, in us and in nature. So our main relationship then is with nature or with our own inner soul. Self and soul become distinguishable terms among the, in the Romantics. Um, the self being a superficial um, sort of barrier to full appreciation of the world and our, and our fellow men and women that soul being the deeper spiritual part of us. 
And to fully appreciate nature, to some extent, means getting rid of the self, which is just selfishness, self-consciousness. Get rid of that um, and see into the life of nature. Um, so the idea is to go deeper in yourself, to see deeper into nature, almost as if they're going on a third dimension here into the movie screen here. And Whoops, sorry, I just did something wrong. Um, and sorry, I hit everything at once. It's almost as if they went deeper into the, the screen and into the wall and sort of came out, if that makes any sense, or back around the other way. So they, this is generally what's called pantheism, that God is in everything, or that everything is God, and in, our, in the right frame of mind, when we are meditating and, and open to the world, we can, or rather I should say open to, the, to na the natural world, we can partake of it somehow. That the life that's in nature is in us as well. And as Wordsworth said, we can see into the life of things. Well, that's a real quick and dirty approach to it, but I think it's, it's helpful. Uh, to see a, a basic move. I think it was a move that many people have made from time to time through the whole history of Christianity and even in Islam and Judaism. Um, any religion with a big, powerful, transcendent God, there have been people doing this, but they were generally either heretics who got burned or they kept fairly quiet about it. But when it was safe to do so, the Romantic movement emerged with this kind of argument. Not everybody liked it, however, here, a century later, T.E. Hume writes, Romanticism is spilt religion. That's not a typo. It's not split religion. It's spilt, like milk. Uh, I've always loved this. I think it's actually rather good. Um, he didn't like it. He was a sort of a classicist. He thought theology should keep things strict and rigid, and there are 39 articles you should believe in, etc., etc. And all this rest was kind of sloppy and gaseous, verbalizings and metaphors and so on. It wasn't really serious. So he took a very dim view of it. And he said, for instance, you don't believe in a god, so you be begin to believe that man is a god. You don't believe in heaven, so you begin to believe in a heaven on earth. In other words, you get romanticism. Well, that's a pretty serious thing to say. Um, one of the critics of transcendentalism here in Boston said, this is egotheism. <laughs> nice word. Um, well, yes, you can find this. Blake said something like that. God becomes as we are, that we may be as he is. Now, William Blake was maybe the most mystical of the lot of uh, the romantics, and in some respects a little odd because he didn't have a very high regard for nature, which puts him, well, he's a puzzle, but... In many other respects, he's a lot like the others. And here's one thing he said. You can find this also in uh, Wordsworth, by our own spirits, are we deified. Friedrich Schlegel, who is the founder, if anyone was, of the German Romantic movement and really gave us the word romantic uh, for a literary movement, said, every good human being is always progressively becoming God. I mentioned heresies, but here's someone who wasn't a heretic, St. Athanasius, who said way back in the second century, God became man that man might become a god. 
So you, this germ does lie in Christianity, um, but the Romantics are bringing it out in a new way, which was both daring and offensive to some people, but uh, also, I think, well, laid out an agenda that we've been perhaps to some extent following ever since, or arguing with ever since. Well, we talked about nature, and of course there was a religion of nature, uh, that right-hand corner of the triangle. And here is Wordsworth again in the same poem I quoted earlier, the Tintern Abbey. A sense sublime, he speaks of, of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. This poem talks about this something, never calls it God, barely even calls it a spirit. Uh, here he does, but he doesn't capitalize it. He never uses the word God in this poem. Um, he calls it something. He can't find a better word for it. He just describes it, a motion and a spirit that impels and rolls. This is what he felt intensely uh, at this revisit to his uh, place above the River Wye. I, so long a worshiper of nature, hither came, unwearied in that service, rather say with warmer love, oh, with, how, how, sorry, with far deeper zeal of holier love. Here's the River Wye again. Worshiper of nature, you've heard that phrase. He may be one of the first to use it. And of course, this offended some people. He got letters when this was published saying, you're a pantheist, you're an atheist. What do you mean, worshiping nature? That's not in the Bible. You can't be Christian, Jewish, or anything and say that. And he just kind of shrugged and said, well, there, that has many meanings. And he, he sort of stuck to it. But the language towards the end of this poem gets, gets very religious. Uh, holier love, zeal. So this is familiar to us, but it's, I think, important to see it connected to that triangle with the head cut off that I showed you earlier. Here is Friedrich again. Irresistible, Friedrich is. We don't have much Friedrich in America, do we? You have to go to Europe to see it, but there are some very good books. And of course, we just Google Friedrich and plus images you'll get at just about everything, which is how I made these. But at any rate, here's winter landscape. If you look closely at this, you see two crutches that have been thrown away, and there's the guy who threw them away. He's sitting here with his hands in prayer, looking up at a crucifix in this big spruce tree or whatever it is. Off, not very far away, is the cathedral, quite a marvelous one, and a gate there. He could make it to the cathedral, but he stopped instead and thrown away his crutches and is worshiping the crucifix among the trees. There's a better place to do it, it seems to say. But notice the obvious sort of quotation of the shapes here. People have noticed for a long time that cathedrals are a little forest-like, especially inside. Um, but here, Friedrich's saying, well, here's your cathedral. It's even got a little triple top here, just like that one. Um, this is religion in nature, you might say. You don't have to go to church. You can find your salvation outside. 
He loved ruins. The Romantics loved ruins, um, both Gothic and ancient Greek and Roman. And this, it's hard to see, but there's actually a crowd of monks going into this. I'm not sure it's being, can you see it from there? I have a glare on it. Okay, good. There's a little, little group of monks round about here. They're going in. I don't know why. It's a ruin, but they're going in as if to church service. It's almost better as a ruin because it's among other ruins, the trees around it. Uh, Madame de Stael, one of the great uh, sort of promoters of Romanticism, she was a Swiss, French-speaking Swiss, who got herself kicked out of France because she didn't like Napoleon, the dictator. Uh, she traveled all around and, and met a lot of German romantics and wrote about it in her great novel, Corinne. The moon is the star of ruins. There is a moon here. You can just about see it up there. I'd never heard of this guy, but this turned up as I googled moonlit ruins. <laughs> um, just so you could see that the classical ruins were also attractive to the Romantics. They were not all thinking of going back to the Middle Ages. Some thought the Greeks, more than the Romans, but the Greeks were on, were on to something. Now, very quickly, I want to talk about the concept of the sublime. We use this all the time as a word meaning something like really great. But it had a more precise meaning at this time. Uh, it was developed in the 18th century by various thinkers. And Wordsworth uses it again in, sorry, this same poem, where he says, I felt a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused. Right? We saw that already, that something. And then again, he comes back to it. Nor less I trust to them, I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burden of the mystery, in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened. Again, his sort of prayer of gratitude for what this place has given him um, and brought him into a blessed mood where he felt the sublime. The sublime had been something that was strictly the preserve of religion. Only God is really sublime. Um, and if storms and mountains seem sublime, it's because God made them. But again, with God sort of out of the picture, these things become sublime in and of themselves, worthy of being written about or painted. I'm going to skip this quotation just in the interest of time. Here is our friend Friedrich again, wanderer above a sea of fog, or a famous painting. He liked to paint scenes with a figure from behind, as if you are seeing what the figure is seeing, but also perhaps a little more. Uh, and here he is, a sublime scene, looking down. Painters like to paint mist because they made things even more sublime because you couldn't really see everything around it, you know where it was coming from, and it tended to connect you or disconnect you in interesting ways. There's this, the sea of ice. You see why this is really scary? I don't know. I don't think he painted this from the life. There's no place in Germany you can see this. See that? That's a ship. That's a spar. Some more spars. That's a spar, I think. So here's a ship crushed in the Arctic ice, I guess. That's sublime, all right. Not for the people on board, but for us. Uh, Theorists of the sublime made it very clear that you can't feel immediately threatened, right? If you're near a volcano, you're just going to run like hell to get out of there. You aren't going to enjoy the sublime. But if you're at a safe distance and you see something 
distantly terrifying, then you're likely to feel the sublime. Something infinite, something vastly larger than you that would be terrifying if you're near it, <clears throat> is the sublime. Turner, I love this, Hannibal crossing the Alps. You can hardly make out Hannibal and his men. They're all in the foreground here. It's mostly about this thing. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Some enormous, looks like a wave, but I guess it's a sky bursting into rain and about to eclipse the sun. Napoleon had crossed the Alps, so there was some interest in this. He was repeating Hannibal. That was a sublime act, a sublime military act. People were interested in it. Turner also found this, not a natural thing, the fire that burned the Houses of Parliament in London. Um, fascinated by it. I'm going rather rapidly here, just to give you some taste of how the, the fad, or the vogue for the sublime caught on here. Joseph Wright of Derby painting Vesuvius in eruption. And there are a few people there that are moving fast. They're not enjoying the sublime. But Joseph sitting a little bit farther away, I guess, can sort of take it in. Here is nature doing its thing. And then there's John Martin. This is the world's largest building. I think it's bigger than the Pentagon. Um, no, you have no idea where it begins and ends. This is Satan, Lucifer. This is out of Milton's Paradise Lost, summoning up his legions. They've just fallen, I guess, and now they're trying to get themselves together to plan what to do now, now that we're here in hell. Can we get something back from the Lord and his angels? Um, but it's glorious. You see, there's a whole huge, whoops, I'm sorry, um, a huge army of troops lined up here, the devils, various squadrons of flag, and Satan here speaking to them. This is really kitschy sublime, there's no question about it, um, but it's great. Uh, here's the great day of wrath when God comes and does everything. I particularly like that there, if you can make it out, is up here are the temples that are being crushed as these enormous boulders and cliffs all fall and the hapless people below. This is the day of wrath from the book of Revelation. A little more subdued and very American, of course, Frederick Church and some of the painters of the... Um, of people like Cole and so on who painted in the Adirondacks and the Catskills. Niagara Falls. Um, I grew up near Niagara Falls, and I think I know just where this is. This is the Horseshoe Falls. There is a safe place to stand, but again, they didn't show it. So it seems all the more sort of scary that you could be just swept right over there if you're not careful. Beautifully done. So it seems to me we owe a lot to what Romanticism was doing to religion, but how it tried to preserve some of the attributes of religion, or at least of, of divinity, whether it's beautiful churches, or the idea of God in us, or God in nature, or the sublime. It seems to me these attitudes are with a great number of people in this country and throughout the West, uh, though obviously not everyone has drunk this particular brand of, of spilt religion. Finally, I want to say something about the Critique of Industrial Capitalism. Wordsworth wrote a sonnet you probably know very well. The world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away. 
assorted. Boom. World here, of course, is the world of worldliness, of buying and selling. It's the world of the city. Wordsworth liked the Lake District. His visits to London were fairly few. I mean, he had friends there. He always found London rather awful. Um, and he wrote about how awful it was. So he says later on, Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasantly, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. You'd rather be a Greek to see a few gods hanging around than to live in this godforsaken world of buying and selling, of commodification, of reification. These are the fancy words we've used since Marx and the Frankfurt School to talk about what modern commercial life has done to us. Um, but he had hold of it, um, that we couldn't see nature anymore, we couldn't feel it. There were some who rather were rather fascinated by the Industrial Revolution and painted it brilliantly. Uh, this is a fairly small plant factory at night, Colebrookdale, one of the centers of the English Industrial Revolution. Um, but they, they made it into something sublime. You can find paintings you might call the industrial sublime. They appreciated it in a way, but for the most part, the romantics were very worried about it. Uh, here's Turner again, an engraving from him. Dudley Castle up on the hill behind, with something rather dispiriting going on along the river or canal. And of course, he's famous for this early painting of a train. The, the trains began in 1830 in England, that is the ones that you could ride from place to place, and then there was a big vogue for it starting in the 1840s and it never looked back until the 20th century. Um, and in his most impressionistic style, he's tried to catch something weird about the train. It's impressive, um, but there's something disturbing about it. It's this big black thing it's different from everything around it, just cutting through it all. But what the Romantics really didn't say too much about the industrial plants themselves, not the first generation. There weren't any in London to speak of. They were mostly in the north. Um, what they were more concerned with were certain ideas, such as utilitarianism, which they thought underlay a lot of what was going on. And they particularly disliked Jeremy Bentham, who once asked for trouble when he said, as far as pleasure is concerned, Pushpin is as good as poetry. That was throwing red meat to the poets. Pushpin being one of these game like shuttles or skittles or whatever. Um, I said, no, 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 no. He doesn't understand the human soul. He doesn't understand what we really need, what we really like. He doesn't understand what divinity means or anything. It was just pleasure and pain for him. So they, they took a rather dim view of it. And the very notion that usefulness or utility should be the criterion struck them as is like terrible, just barbaric. Uh, not only cold-hearted, but just inhuman. Now, this, they may have been unfair, because Bentham did get a lot of legislation passed in Parliament that most of us would probably celebrate, but they still didn't like his philosophy. And here's Schlegel again. Industry and utility are the angels of death, who, with fiery swords, prevent man's return to paradise. Very unequivocal. Here's Corinne again from the novel by Madame de Stael. Oh, how I love what is useless, she says. <laughs> right? I mean, don't you impart something? 
This is still with us, I think. But we are now well along in the industrialization of the world, several phases of it, and commodification. There's hardly a thing that you can't buy and sell now. Uh, Leopardi in uh, Italy is writing, this stupid age, which sets utility as the highest requirement and fails to see that life becomes, as a consequence, more and more useless. Or Lee Hunt, a friend of Keats and Shelley, writing a little later, nature likes external beauty and man likes it. It softens the heart, enriches the imagination, and helps to show us that there are other goods in the world besides bare utility. I'm going to skip this and mention the poets had another vision, that we could create or recreate an organic community, a community of people that knew each other, that understood each other, that helped each other. And in this passage, which I'll have to skim, he talks about London and how there are so many people here and so many things in it that you can no longer get any meaning out of it. There are just too many things, and they seem, they're all a little bit different, which means they're really not different at all. It's like the 19 different kinds of wheat checks or something you can buy in a grocery store. Who cares? This is just cluttering the brain, and they're all alike anyway. So he, he found that London was a threat to this sense. People could live next door to each other and not know each other, he said. He did, couldn't believe that. And I guess he doesn't live in Boston either, but um, what he liked was something like this. <laughs> this is the Lake District. Um, he also admired the skill and the craft that men and women showed in, in the more traditional societies that he saw. To be a shepherd took real skill. You had, you had to have dogs that had real skill, too. But uh, there they are. They have this ancient knowledge of how to do things, which he admired. And they form a community. There are just ways of doing things when they get together in the villages and small towns and so on. Blake did see something of the factories, and he said, here's a bit I will read, intricate wheels were invented by these manufacturers. Wheel without wheel, which meant gears, to perplex youth in their outgoings and to bind to labors in Albion, that's England, of day and night, the myriads of eternity that they might grind and polish brass and iron hour after hour, laborious task. Kept ignorant of its use, that they might spend the days of wisdom in sorrowful drudgery to obtain a scanty pittance of bread, in ignorance to view a small portion and think that all, and call it demonstration, blind to the simple rules of life. Blake was a printer, an engraver, a painter, as well as a poet. And he knew a lot about craftsmanship. I mean, this is what this, that plate looked like in the poem Jerusalem. And we won't try to read that. But you notice the chain down the side? This is all engraved on a single piece of copper plate. And you printed a copy. This is the only colored copy of it, as a matter of fact. Over in Germany, we have Novalis writing a novel in which he talks about miners, men who go and dig out metal. And he imagined how there, that could be a pretty good job. This seems like romanticizing, but he actually was an inspector of mines. He knew something about it. And he imagined, I won't really try to read this whole thing because time is running out. But he imagined that miners would take pleasure in their work just to find the seams and to appreciate where the mineral is, to know a lot about it, to be part of the earth. We may laugh at this, but it's not a stupid vision, at least, of how serious work might be. 
where you're in touch with nature and you learn the thousand things you need to know and you find yourself engaged in it. And a generation later, two generations later, we have William Morris and the arts and crafts movement, which, again, it's largely a niche for some of us to buy these handicrafts, but he had a strong sense of what work should be like. Here you see are two kinds of work, one good, the other bad, one not far removed from a blessing, a lightening of life, the other a mere curse, a burden to life. What's the difference between them, then? This, one has hope in it, the other has not. It is manly to do the one kind of work, and manly also to refuse to do the other. The hope of pleasure in the work itself, how strange that hope must seem to some of my readers, to most of them, yet I think that to all living things there is a pleasure in the exercise of their energies, and that even beasts rejoice in being lithe and swift and strong. So he, he had a notion that work should be part of life and should not be just something you do to pay for the rest of your life. And he saw that by his time, the Industrial Revolution was in full tilt. So he made beautiful books like this of the Kelmscott Press. And though nobody can afford these today, and nobody could afford them then except the well-to-do, he at least set a sort of model for... Um, what good craftsmanship could be. He built houses, he built he had wallpaper. My wife is wearing a scarf that has the uh, a Morris design on it. Um, and I think he helped start something that is still with us, the feeling that work has become degraded under capitalism, and not just capitalism, but industrial socialism as well in most countries. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it. How can we make work more humane and better? And is it just like this? Is it like this? This is from Amazon. So the third subject then, how can we do, do something about the industrialization and the capitalization of the world, the commodification of the world, where money is the bottom line everywhere? How can we sort of pull back from that, transform it in some way, not just to save the planet from its climate, but to make it more humane and livable, is one of the things I think we could thank Romanticism for making us ask. So, thank you. <laughs>